I'm what people call a tech optimist. Um, uh, you know, I, I feel like the technological change that we are capable of bringing about in the world is the only dimension that humans have to save ourselves from all of the harm that we also do to the world. Um, but I'm quite optimistic that we will succeed in doing that. Welcome to the Search and Succeed podcast. I'm Rob Glass, managing partner of Hunston Partners. We are so fortunate to share many journeys with some exceptional people throughout their careers, people whom are thriving in their area of expertise. And on this podcast, we'll be chatting with them about how they perceive and strive for success within their industry and their life. And always delighted to be here with the wonderful Joe Moore and David Cohen. I hope you enjoy. I'm so excited about the guest joining us on the podcast today, Ted Shelton. I've known Ted for quite some time. He genuinely is a great guy, a family man, an ardent skiing enthusiast and professionally has extensive and a real wealth of experience, specifically in the field of automation and artificial intelligence. As an expert partner at Bain & Company, we really appreciate Ted's time on the Search and Succeed podcast today, and he is sure to bring a unique and valuable perspective to the discussion. So sit back, relax, and get ready to dive into some insightful conversations with Ted. Ted, great to see you. Thanks for having me, Rob. Terrific to be here. Ted and I, Ted, you and I have known each other for, for some time. Obviously, you're based on the on the West Coast and I'm in the UK. And even though we both do international travel, it's quite bonkers that we've never met face to face, but we've had a number <laughs> of morning coffee conversations, which always brighten up my day. Well, and from morning morning for me anyway. <laughs> morning for you. Absolutely. Yeah, given the time difference, but yes. Yeah, yeah, wonderful to always be able to connect with you as well, Rob. And I know you're such a busy guy. Sometimes I'll send you a text message at what's like five, six in the morning and you respond. So I do wonder what time in the morning you get up because um, I know that with the East Coast and with you working globally, um, uh, you know, you've got to be up and, and working at such a time frame, such a capacity. Um, I'm, I'm all, you know, really keen to talk. Joe, David and I are really keen to, you know, learn about you, Ted, and and talk about, um, you know, the, the generative AI and chat GPT subject that is so at the... Uh, you know, the tip of our tongs at the moment, and I'm sure all the conversations you're having with your clients. I, I thought it'd be great to also just chat with you about you a little bit and get to to learn about what, what drives Ted. Um, as I'm sure there's lots, both work and non-work. Um, something I, I ask uh, on all our podcasts is about the phrase search and succeed. So I was just keen to get from your perspective when you hear the phrase and when you, um, you know, what it means to you and what, how it resonates with uh, with your thinking. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great name for a podcast. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, there's the connotation around the business services that you and your firm offer. Um, but for me, uh, when I think about search and succeed, I I think about sort of the life journey that I hope that we're all on, in which we are curious, lifelong learners, um, and where and and where we are open open to the world, open to possibility, uh, open to the change, being adaptable, um, uh, especially now. And, you know, we'll talk more about ChatGPT and the changes going on in that particular technology domain. But I think all of us in our lifetimes have experienced tremendous change, um, mm. uh, you know, global change, political change, climate change, but technology change, I think, being one of the really positive uh, kinds of dimensions of change, which has resulted in our having to reinvent ourselves uh, and having to say for us to be successful, how do I think differently about my life, my career, my aspirations? Um, and so for me, search and succeed is, 
you know, the constant activity of searching to understand the world and adapting ourselves to be successful in that changing world. Brilliantly put. Uh, everyone's got a different answer for it. And I, I love that one. I think the, the word that you use there is open, which is probably um, open and agile, which is probably on the basis of the where we are right now and, and, and how much AI is going to impact us or, or change the world in the next 10 years that we have to be open-minded to what success will look like. And what about you, Ted, you know, as far as you as a person, what drives you, what motivates you, what, what do you look for when it comes to success and happiness? Well, I think, you know, for my entire career, um, I have lived at the intersection of business and technology. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, all the way back to my first job while I was still in high school and I had a, a, you know, a job as a programmer, software developer, um, and seeing how these machines could be programmed to create new experiences. And it happened to be a game company at the time, um, but it was sort of this, this recognition that these machines were capable of doing incredible things. Even then, I think, I think when I first started for uh, California Pacific uh, Software Company, I had an Apple II on my desk with 32K of memory, and I was really excited the day it got upgraded to 48K of memory. <laughs> Um, and, uh, I just, from that time on, I wanted to be right at that intersection. Um, so that's, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning is seeing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm what people call a tech optimist. Um, uh, you know, I, I feel like the technological change that we are capable of bringing about in the world is the only dimension that humans have to save ourselves from all of the harm that we also do to the world. Um, but I'm quite optimistic that we will succeed in doing that. And when you, uh, it, it appears that your work is a big part of your passion. You know, my, my question to you about what drives and motivates you, I suppose the first thing that comes is um, is the work that you do and the and, and the world that you, the tech world that you live in. I, I know that you're also, you know, you've got wonderful family and wonderful daughters and um, who are very successful in their own right now. How do you, how do you find that you manage your your work life balance over your career, Ted? Even even through to today. Well, I, it is it is definitely a challenge. Um, uh, I my my uh, youngest daughter, who's now nineteen, um, continues to remind me that I missed her ninth birthday um, <laughs> because I was off on a work trip. The trip. So ten years later, I'm still paying for it. Um, uh, you know, I, I have made a lot of choices in my career. Um, around the the jobs that I've taken, the roles that I've accepted uh, um, to try to balance um, what is for me one of the most important um, bedrock elements of my life and my career. I mean, I, I, I think that family and friends are the thing that ultimately provide the source of meaning for everything else that we do in our lives. Um, and so I am always trying to optimize for that. And, you know, maybe I'd be retired on an island flying around in a private jet now if I'd done some of the other things that were offered to me uh, as job opportunities. But I haven't done those things because I said, actually, I want to be there for that dance performance that my daughter is in. Um, and if I take this job, I'm, I'm not going to be, which does not mean I haven't pushed hard, right? I've always been leaning in and saying, okay, how am I going to go and do that next thing? Um, but it is, you, you do, everybody has their own line. I mean, I remember saying to one employer um, who wanted me to be available for 3 a.m. video conference calls because their headquarters was overseas. Right. Um, I said, no, you know what? Um, you can have me from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. <laughs> now, a lot of people would be like, what? 6 a.m. to 10 p.m.? Yeah. And I said, Monday through Friday, right? You know, but my weekends and my, I, I need time to sleep. I need time to be with my family. And I'm drawing a line. We all draw a line differently, but that's, uh, you know, that's the balance. And some people would say, like, my my daughter complaining that I missed her ninth birthday, that I haven't always drawn the line in the right place. So we all try. And some people, I think, would say that 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. isn't maybe sustainable. Um, and it can... Well, it can't be. It can't be every day. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying, no, you cannot have me before 6 a.m. or after 10 p.m. Yeah. In whatever time zone that I happen to be working for you in, right? So if yeah. I'm in London, it's a different 6 a.m. and 10 p.m., but yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
I think the work-life balance thing and how you how you look back on your career and look at what you've achieved and where you've got to. Um, there's always moments where, as you say, you know, you could have taken a different decision, a different path, and ended up, you know, it, I suppose in a, ultimately a different place, right? Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I think a lot of the conversations that we have on this podcast around success isn't that success is how well you've done in your career it's not necessarily you know how what the position you are in your organization it's success with your family and with your kids and you know uh, it's nice that your daughter only remembers one birthday that you weren't there for because there's other people <laughs> that get you know five or six thrown at them um and, and and that's probably quite a successful outcome I'd say for someone that's got to your level in your you know in in business yeah, no, and 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. is certainly, you know, fairly generous in terms of offering your, your day up to people, isn't it? So um, I, I'd really like to, to understand, you know, earlier on in your career, how you were founder and CEO of kind of scale-up businesses. As you've moved, you know, from being an entrepreneur and, you know, what that meant to you, moving more into the corporate world, what kind of lessons did you learn? What could you take with you to make you really successful as a leader in that different environment? And and also, you know, how how that helped you learn to engage with clients. You know, obviously there's a there's a difference in those two worlds, but clearly there's some translatable skills. So just keen to understand what you felt you could carry across. Well, I think I think the um the differences between the roles um have many different dimensions. I think when you're in a small company, um your ability to influence uh the future uh of that company is you know, potentially 100%, right? You're sitting alone in your kitchen. <laughs> your small company is one person. You know, you are in complete control of your destiny, right? Uh, whereas when you're in a very large company, um, you know, and, and Bain and Company, which is where I am currently employed, is 15,000 or more than 15,000 employees globally now. My ability to influence the future of Bain is very small. Um, uh, and so, you know, that's one dimension. But then the other dimension is when you're in a very large company, you have a pretty big landscape to operate in. Um, so at Bain, uh, we have the for- good fortune to be trusted advisors to some of the largest companies in the world, um, the most senior executives at those companies and working on the hardest problems. And as a small company, you know, you have trouble getting through that door. <laughs> you don't get the attention of the large company CEO and, and get a chance to talk about the biggest problems. So, so there are pretty big dimensional differences in, in the life and the role. Um, you know, I think um, as a small company, as a startup uh, scale-up uh, executive, um, you know, the, the the challenge is always the three-legged stool of um, do I have the financial resources? Do I have the people resources? Do I have the market access um, to be able to scale up? Um, and, uh, and you're constantly with one short leg. Uh, <laughs> so... You know, we, you, you might succeed in raising that next venture capital round, but then like, how am I going to get the people to be able to go and and take advantage of that capital raise? Um, yeah. uh, or you may be short on capital and you may be saying, how am I going to make my next payroll? <laughs> right? um, so so I think that's a, that's a set of challenges that you're you're constantly in the middle of as a, as a scale up CEO. You know, and in in the large company environment, I think, you know, the dynamics are so different. I, I was the. Um, Chief strategy officer and you know a publicly traded company um, called Borland in the early 2000s and you know there um, you know our, our our set of challenges had to do with um, we have this 1500 person organization and to be relevant in the future we have to get those 1500 people working and thinking differently right and you have to take a battleship and turn it right um, and even as a member of the executive team, even as one of the most senior people in the company, um, the ability to move that ship, uh, you know, it was it was inch by inch as opposed to, hey, we can pivot three, you know, 180 degrees and go do something different, right? So, so yeah, um, different challenges, um, equal in excitement, I would say. And I think a lot for the individual who chooses one path or another comes down to, you know, what is your particular personality type, what what excites you, what gets you out of bed in the morning, but also where are you in life? Um, I mean, it is much different today um, now that all three of my daughters have left home and have lives of their own. It's much different today for me to think about, hey, 
how am I spending my time? Am I sleeping under my desk? <laughs> um, uh, ver you know, versus being able to be home with my family. Um, whereas also though, uh, you know, being later in my career, I'm saying, hmm, what is the uh, opportunity to maximize my income for my retirement, right? You have to think about that too, right? So there's lots of different dimensions that come into these things. Sure, that makes, it all makes a lot of sense. And we've spoken about you focusing your career at the intersection of technology and business. Um, and I think bridging that gap is something that is super important for uh, consulting organizations, strategy organizations, system and service integration type businesses. Um, but one one of the main focuses for, for you, at least in recent years, um, has been the automation and AI space. Um, and I think AI is a, for many people is a, a fairly new phrase, but it's actually come in, in many guises over the past 20 years, probably longer than people would expect. So when did, when did you get into that space? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. It was actually a recruiter call, um, <laughs> going back to the search and succeed theme. Um, those recruiters. Uh, those darn recruiters, right? Um, no, it was it was it was a funny moment. It was actually, uh, yeah. So, so I think we all have these opportunities where, um, if you put yourself in the right place, then opportunities will show up. Um, and being in the right place in the right time gives you that opportunity that you then have to choose what you do with it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, about ten years, actually, a little more than ten years ago now, I received a call from a recruiter uh, from IBM. And the recruiter said, um, hey, we're trying to identify some senior leadership to join our IBM Watson division. And I was very happy where I was, but um, you know, I always have these conversations. I'm always open to, open to the world. So I'm going to learn because you don't know what the outcome of that learning experience is going to be. And in this particular case, it wasn't to go to IBM. I didn't do that. But I did say, I'm sorry, IBM Watson division? You mean Watson, that thing that you guys are running all the marketing campaigns around. Yeah. She's like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just a marketing campaign. It's real technology and we're doing real things for real companies. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? Really? Right. And it was a real wake up call for me um, to say this topic that actually I'd been very interested in, in, in college around natural language processing and artificial intelligence, neural networks, um, but had always been kind of a toy that we hadn't managed to do much pragmatic work for the enterprise with, mm -hmm. that suddenly a large company like IBM said, this is now, we are doing it, it is happening, right? And I'm like, oh, I better re-educate myself. I better be open to the world and figure out what's going on here. And so that really started me on a, on a new journey because I've always, I've always tried to find those places where there is an emerging technology where you can say, yesterday something that was not possible today because of this new technology is now possible and therefore the world is different. Um, and I think Apple's introduction of the iPhone in 2007 was one of those moments. Um, the, you know, the web browser, um, Tim Berners-Lee introducing that, that was a moment. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, Mark Benioff, you know, no software, um, uh, you know, introducing really, you know, not, not that he was the only one doing it, but but he really drove sort of the thinking in the marketplace about cloud and SaaS models. Mm -hmm. That was a moment. Um, and and this was a moment. Watson was a moment um, when you said, actually, there's something different now. Um, and it's taken 10 years to get to where we are today with people like me saying, no, no, really, the world is changing <laughs> for the rest of the world to wake up and go, oh, wait, actually, the world is changing <laughs> <laughs> but now it is. Yeah, absolutely. So your your position at, at Bain today, what what does that encompass? What are you doing for the organization? What are you doing for your clients? So at Bain and Company, what um, uh, I am is a, what we call an expert partner. Um, and so we distinguish between industry partners and, and partners who have particular competency areas. So an industry partner would have some vertical expertise. They would understand the insurance industry. Um, but not necessarily any of the technical or even business concepts that sort of drive the way uh, a different part of the insurance company would operate. So we might say, oh, well, we have a procurement expert. Um, and, uh, and so every company needs procurement. That, that is an industry specific. 
In my case, I'm, I work with a group called Vector, uh, which is our umbrella for all the technology practices, and my specialties are automation and AI and software development, which you know I spent my entire career doing. Um, and so what happens then is for any given client, and I work across every industry, um, when a question is coming on one of those topics, then the teams will say, hey, let's find an expert to help be an advisor on this, on this case. When you talk about uh, AI and software development, how do the two interact with each other? What's going to be the impact of AI on software development? To... You know, it may be the first really large scale implication of generative AI. Um, there are already um, a number of companies that have brought products to market. Um, of course, Microsoft probably being the best known mm. um, with, uh, with what they call Copilot. Um, but Google just announced a partnership with um, a, a product company um, to bring to market a competing way of doing software development. And Amazon also has uh, has a product in this space. So you've got you know at least three really big companies saying we are going to transform the way software development is done. Mm -hmm. And and so if I can just sketch out a couple of the components of this. So generative AI is capable of producing code. I mean at the at the core of it. If we talked a little bit about what generative AI is, it's a symbol manipulation engine. And so I can give it all sorts of different kinds of symbols to manipulate, but software code is a great example of symbols. Words language is also a great example of symbols. So it can generate code. Um, it can then help test the code. It can then help improve or fix the code. It can also write documentations for the code. It can also take code that's written in one language and translate it to another language. Um, and so suddenly you look at the role of software developer and, and two things that I think are really important happen. One is the average software developer can become in a variety of studies 10 to 100 times more productive. Uh, and secondly, um, a less experienced developer can use these tools to suddenly produce code at a volume and quality that is much closer to a more senior developer. Um, if I look at the whole history of software development, I mentioned being the chief strategy officer for Borland, which was a software development tools company. The whole history of software development has been, how do we create abstraction layers that actually make it easier and faster to program so that we have a larger number of people who are capable of producing high quality code? Because software ultimately is, a, as um, Mark Andreessen wrote 10 years ago, uh, eating the world, right? <laughs> Every industry is being transformed by software. So if we can produce better software faster and cheaper, uh, then we will change the world faster and cheaper. Um, so uh, you know, if you if you say, "Gee, all existing software developers are ten to hundred times more productive, and I can double the number of software developers," I'm going to have a lot more software a lot faster. Um, so what does that do? It starts. You start saying, "Well." Um, every company that has legacy tech debt needs to relook at that tech debt and say, hey, using these tools, can we dig out from under all of the legacy software that we've got? Can we upgrade it? Can we modernize? Um, every commercial software company can say, how do we actually increase the velocity with which we're delivering new functionality to the market? Um, I think the other thing, the other side of it is um, what any software company should be thinking about right now is, does this capability give my competitors the opportunity to quickly duplicate the capabilities in my product that have allowed me to maintain my market position, right? So it's a, it's a disruption that both creates opportunity and threat. It's at this point of the podcast that I'd like to mention a charity very close to our heart, Prevent Breast Cancer as the only UK charity entirely dedicated to the prediction and prevention of breast cancer. They're committed to freeing the world from the disease altogether. At Prevent Breast Cancer, they make sure 100% of their research funding is focused on preventing breast cancer for future generations. They are right at the front line in the fight against the disease. And we are right behind them. You know what you talked before about being open. You talked before about um, how it's taken ten years when talking about Watson to you know for people to come to a, to get on board, if you like, with the advancements of it. And you wonder 
what the pace of, uh, of generative AI and AI is going to have on society and the way that we learn, the way education is is provided for, you know, for children, etc. Uh, because it's not about having the ability to retain information necessarily anymore. It might, it's perhaps more about how you ultimately use that information and how you think uh, in, a, in a different way. Do you have any thoughts? I mean, you know, and we're jumping from thing, thing to thing at the moment. Do you have any <laughs> thoughts around, you know, what, what, what that all looks like, you know, in the next couple of years? Yeah, two, two, two answers to that. Um, so in, a, in very rough terms, so don't hold me to the exact dates, but just think about this as, yeah, sort of at a gross level, this is the, the right, you know, model. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in the we're we're in a phase of development of artificial intelligence, which is only about five years old, less than five years, or about halfway through it. Even if you sort of start with 2020, when GPT three was first introduced, um, and and was sort of the first large language model, which we could see was um, actually creating human level content. Yeah. Um, so we're about three years into that. Um, and, and I say we're about halfway in that. So if you say, let's sketch that out to a five, six year time horizon. Um, the reason I draw that is because if we look back before 2020, there was about a 10 year period uh, where people were developing and experimenting with um, uh, learning models. That is, I've got an algorithmic approach to analyzing data, which through a feedback loop of um, uh, being told when the model's right and when it's wrong, I can improve the model. And that was preceded by about a 20-year period of developing these analytical models. Um, so from about 1990 to about 2010. Um, and you can go back further than that before 1990 and say, well, there's about a 40-year a, a period in which sort of the original building blocks of artificial intelligence were developing from the 1950s. So wow. from 1950 to 1990 is a 40-year period, 1990 to 2010, a 20-year 2010, yeah, so you're sort of seeing 40, 20, 10, 5, 2, 1, right? So there's there's this acceleration in our knowledge that is um, creating emergent function in the technology that is going to be transformational. Now, what does that mean for us as human beings? So we I, we think, so we did a, we did a big study, um, which we published in the beginning of last year, Bain did. Um, on um, the work, what we call the working future. So if you go and Google the working future, Bain, you'll find our report um, published in, in the beginning of last year. Um, and we looked at every occupation and we looked at what are the skill sets um, that human beings really do add a lot of value doing. And we, we boil it down to really three things. Um, so three things are critical thinking, creativity, um, and interpersonal relationships. And the other two categories we called information processing and, of course, physical labor. Um, And I think the expectation should be that over time, um, there's economic benefit in eliminating information processing and physical labor from what human beings do. And so we're going to see more and more ameliorations for how that um, data information processing and and physical labor are done. Um, And so... As human beings, what we need to do is focus on how can we enhance, uh, or or I like to use the word augment, um, our critical thinking, our creativity, and our interpersonal relations using that technology so that uh, we don't stand still. Like those three things that are very human that we do that are valuable, it's not as if we're simply going to do those in a vacuum, right? We also need to continue to evolve in how we do those things. And so for critical thinking, how do I use technology to give me more information and more depth and more analysis of that information to help me think through an issue. Uh, For creativity, how do I use technology to actually experiment and and generate more ideas, more treatments of those ideas faster so I can come to the best or even a better outcome, right? And interpersonal relations, you know, what am I doing to get coaching on, you know, hey, this person I'm talking to is, 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 you know, is, is getting angry and what could I do to, to cause them to, you know, sort of move their thinking toward the position I want to get them to, whatever it is. And so uh, that's that's going to be the challenge for us as human workers um, uh, in the future is 
How do we take those very human skills? How do we get better at them by being paired with technology? And you know, the technology has no agency. You know, ChatGPT isn't saying, hey, let's go to the moon, right? Human beings say, hey, let's go to the moon, right? It's still human beings that have agency. And, uh, and that symbiotic relationship between us and the tools we use is what is always for thousands, for tens of thousands of years made us different from other animals. Um, and will in the future for the next 10,000 years. Uh, it, it's it's so interesting to explore, you know, all the different aspects of how AI can touch on our lives. And I know, I know you described yourself as a tech optimist earlier, but I'm just interested to get insight into, you know, we've talked a little bit about how it can change things, but actually how this kind of progression obviously has some positives, but, you know, every, every kind of human advancement has the positive and the negative aspects with it. Just wondered what you know perhaps it's in in the Bain um, research that you talked about but you know what negatives uh, have you considered and, and are there ways to mitigate those just really understanding that more balanced picture sure sure well let me let me delve into history to give two examples um, that I think are relevant today um, so we all have heard of the Gutenberg Bible right um, and and what a tremendous advancement for human knowledge to be able to print books rather than rely upon scribes to print books. But one of the things we don't know very much about in general, like, you know, as a common topic that we discuss is um, uh, the, uh, the concept of indulgences and what the Gutenberg printing press did for indulgences. So an indulgence was a way that the Catholic Church would um, allow uh, somebody to um, um, make compensation for some sin that they might have engaged in. <laughs> and so you would, if you were a very wealthy person, you would pay the church uh, and you would receive a certificate that said, you know, the, you, you know, God forgives you for, you know, this particular transgression. And of course, back in the day when a monk had to write that, uh, you know, the monk would, you know, have to consciously write down, you know, all this information and it was, it was time consuming and expensive. And so there's a limit on the amount of indulgences the church could offer and the price is high. Well, if you can print indulgences, <laughs> you can imagine the kind of chaos that that unleashes. Yeah. Um, uh, so I'm just giving you sort of one little For example. example. <laughs> <laughs> but you can imagine all the things that that were unintended consequences of suddenly having a printing press, right? And and I think you know we should expect as well that there are all sorts of unintended consequences of having a machine that can. Uh, spit out words uh, that seem like they're from a human being, right? Imagine the text messages you're going to receive. Already criminal gangs are um, copying uh, your loved one's voice and even image in order to convince you that your loved one is in trouble and you should immediately wire your life savings to them. <laughs> um, so there's all sorts right. of unintended consequences um, that we have to learn as a society to guard against. Um, you know, another example... Um, if you were a hand weaver um, at, you know, the introduction of uh, the industrial age, um, you quickly found out that your labor, which, you know, you had learned over a long period of time um, uh, to be able to perfect, was now worth zero in the economy um, because a machine weaving apparatus was able to duplicate what you could do in a day in a minute. Um, and it was very difficult for um, the hand weaver to suddenly reinvent themselves as a weaving machine repair person. <laughs> um, and so I think we face both of those consequences of these technologies. Um, and, you know, we talk about how fast this is happening today, but actually um, weaving machines replaced hand weavers in a very short period of time in England. It was, it was a period of years, not decades. Mm -hmm. Um, and so created an enormous economic disruption. Um, and I think we should expect, you know, both the societal disruption of sort of the unintended consequences like the Gutenberg um, uh, uh, printing press, and we should expect the economic disruptions of um, occupations that we have long thought were protected from technology suddenly falling by the wayside. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that, that I mean, it's just throw up, throw out number, but something like 300 million jobs are going to be affected by by AI. Yeah, not, there was a, a, a recent report, um, mm. and it may be understated. Mm. I mean, I think the question is not whether your job is going to be disrupted, but by how much. 
um, how much will the search profession be disrupted? So do you think Ted, there's going to be a case of working with the technology for a period of time before the technology eventually takes over many of the aspects? Uh, well, David, I, I would actually um, pose it differently. I think, I think it, if, if I look at it from the individual perspective, I think it is about how we as individuals redefine the value that we provide in the economy Mm-hmm. And how do we adapt to using the technology in a way to enhance that value? So I am no longer going to add value in the economy by copying a cell from a uh, spreadsheet from one document to another. Um, I'm no longer going to add value in the economy by answering a phone and saying to the caller, the office hours are between 8 p.m. 8 a.m. and 6 p.m., right? Um, there's enormous number of tasks that are going to start just shedding away from what the workforce does today. Um, and so as a worker, then you need to be able to say, okay, what is it that I do? How do I do it in a way that adds value to the economy? Um, and I think that's that's the real problem is we don't teach people to be adaptable. We don't teach people to be curious and creative. We don't teach people to be critical thinkers. I, and and I, I, I don't mean that no one learns these things or no one teaches these things, but rather as an economy, these are not the things that we value in the educational system. And so broadly speaking, we have a huge population of people who never grew up being curious, creative, critical thinkers. Um, and, uh, and those are the skills that we have to have to be successful in the next economy. So I do think it's an enormous challenge for us as a society to say, how will we infuse the population with these values? And what do we do for those people that aren't going to embrace that? Interestingly, the education system, those are almost the characteristics that the education system has tried to suppress. They're much more about conforming and you know the repetitive tasks, which is the aspects that will be eliminated and really moving into that creative challenge and you know that really different way of thinking i think that's i think it's going to be an enormous challenge going forward for the educational sector because you know kids the, the new generation growing up this is going to be their norm so they're going to be more equipped to know what's needed of it than the people that are in position teaching them it's going to be a really interesting kind of next few decades isn't it really thinking about that i agree joe and and, and i think we already are starting to see it in the way in which different educational institutions are reacting to ChatGPT. You know, we have on the one end of the spectrum organizations that say, you know, this is absolutely banned. It's cheating. You know, you're going to be, you're going to be expelled if we catch you using this. Right. Um, And then you have on the other end of the spectrum, you have educational institutions who are saying, wow, the workforce of the future of which you will be a member is going to be using this tool. How do I teach you how to use this tool in a way where it is an augmentation of your ability. So it is more creative. There's a great piece in the New York Times uh, recently about um, you know, students who s- struggle with language skills for a variety of reasons, you know, dyslexia and other things, and how these tools are an amazing way to be able to actually allow them to step up and overcome some of the barriers to sort of basic elements of communication um, to allow them to really express themselves and 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 utilize their capacity for critical thinking. So, you know, there so I wouldn't, you know, sort of throw out the entire educational experiment. <laughs> no, no, um, it's just interesting but, how it's going to have yes. to evolve. Yeah, it, re- it yes, really is and, it and it'll level the playing field in terms of those challenges that people have around language skills. I, I think and and people also where they're learning in an environment where it's not necessarily their first language. There's going to be all sorts of of impact, isn't there? So yeah, and as you said, that rate of change as it accelerates, you know, as the next generation is coming through, their norm is so fundamentally different to people that are even just a decade older than them. And the critical thinking as well is is really pertinent because if school is often about information gathering and, you know, when you're going to do your exam, you know, what what year did first the First World War start and when did it finish? And it's kind of not that important to know anymore because look, we've had Google for years and, and obviously this is going to help. But it's more about the thinking about the why and the how and the, you know, and the, and the critical thinking fundamentally behind, I suppose, how kids are educated rather than the what necessarily. Uh, and it could take some time, I'd imagine, to to kind of to get that into, yeah. into the educational well, society. 
Well, and and to your point, I, I mean, I think it, it, the importance of knowing a date, right? It, uh, you know, a specific date on what day, um, you know, was the um, uh, Austro-Hungarian prince shot, which sort of marks the beginning of the war, right? Um, it's probably, it, it, but it's but it is important to sort of know the era, right? It's sort of like, hey, sort of in you know the. 19, early 1900s, this happened, and then it was followed by this thing that happened sort of, you know, in the 1930s and 40s, right? Um, and so the kind of learning that we do, right, which is going to be more about how do we actually give you the building blocks for thinking, um, as opposed to how do we make you into an automaton that reports on specific events on specific dates, right? Mm -hmm. um, because that's going to be the skill set that matters. Um, and, and look, we had this debate in the 1980s about calculators. I mean, I, I, yeah. I was a high school student at the time. And, uh, you know, it was cheating to bring a calculator into the classroom. You know, and now my kids are told, bring your calculator to the test. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's amazing. Right. But it, yeah. it goes back to the, you know, the original question of is education sparking a flame or filling a vessel? It's kind of that that kind of thinking, isn't it? And we've gone very much down the filling the vessel route. And actually what we're looking at now is it's sparking that flame, that that curiosity. I think I think that's it's a great opportunity, actually, in, in terms of helping kids look at the world differently. Yes, absolutely. Tremendous. If if we can grasp it. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, so my, my daughter goes to a. A university where one of the um, primary programs is teaching young people to be educators, um, and she has a number of friends who are learning to be grade school educators. And you know, there are a few teachers there who are thinking about the future. Right? One of one of the teachers said, "Hey, I want us all to now stop and use ChatGPT and learn what this is." But the majority of the education for the educators of the future is still not thinking about this change. Mm -hmm. So we have yeah. a lot of work to do. Yeah, and and, and th these are our future leaders, right? Uh, captains of industry who, and, and and everyone has to start somewhere. So, you know, with with the impact of perhaps what early career roles are going to be, and therefore then how organisations are set up. What do you think the impact of AI is going to have on organisations, Ted? Well, I think first of all, we should expect that all of us will use this technology every day in all of the general business tasks that we do. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to get embedded in Microsoft Office and Outlook. It's going to get embedded in Google Docs. It's, you know, it, so, so it's going to be there. How we embrace it and use it will be our choice. Um, there's a terrific study that um, two graduate students at MIT published around the beginning, of, I think it was March 2nd, um, uh, on... Um, Productivity and quality improvement resulting from the use of ChatGPT. Um, and what they were able to measure, it was a very well designed study, 455 participants, all college educated business professionals. They designed a whole series of tasks for these college uh, educated business professionals to do that were you know, equivalent to normal business tasks that would take 20 to 30 minutes to complete. Um, and so they measured the average without using ChatGPT. Uh, which was 27 minutes. And then they had a subset of the group that then did similar tasks using ChatGPT, and they took 17 minutes, right? So more than a third time reduction. And what was uh, of secondary, but also critical importance, was they had an outside set of reviewers look at every one of the outputs. Um, and uh, the quality of the outputs increased for all participants that used ChatGPT, significantly increased. Um, and what was even more interesting is the third finding was that the worst performers actually increased the most in quality. Um, and so you actually had a narrowing of the band where you had uh, a more consistent, high quality performance by your workforce. Um, and so businesses have to look at that and say, oh, my God, I've got to go and implement that yesterday. Now, when I implement that, what I'm doing is not saying ChatGPT does the task. Remember, it still took 17 minutes. It didn't take 30 seconds, right? And so what I'm telling my employees to do is to say, yes, generate a first draft using ChatGPT. And then your responsibility is fact check, um, improve, uh, you know, expand, make it, make it uh, more specific to the purpose at hand. Um, and so there's still a lot of work to do, but the person becomes an editor, an improver, 
not a creator. And it really changes the role that we play in these kinds of activities. Um, so whether we're writing a grant proposal or uh, we're writing a, a review of an employee or whatever it happens to be, right? Suddenly the intellectual activity is very different when we're augmented by the machine. And, and that's the change that we all have to be thinking about. It's great to be in a world where things can be done quicker, right? Uh, I'm all for that. I'm of that generation, just about. I, I, speak to, <laughs> I speak to my father, you know, and he still works, he's a, he's a lawyer, but, you know, he he was, grew up in the world of, you know, post came in and you didn't respond until, you know, you received the post back. And obviously previous generations have had to deal with how fast now communication is and, and response times, et cetera. So pace is obviously great. The question I think about immediately is the creativity that you've taken away from humans in the example you just gave is significant, right? And isn't isn't that going to have an impact on both the type of creative person that you know that lives in society and adds value to us, uh, or, and also the enjoyment of it? Well, yeah. Let's let's talk about creativity, um, and because I think I think these technologies actually enhance individual creativity across the board, but also open up creative endeavors to a much broader number of people. So so, so let's switch to the topic of art for a moment. Um, yeah. And because there's an enormous amount of debate about these tools that are generating images, right? Um, you know, Dolly, Stability, Mid Journey, there's a whole bunch of, uh, of different products out there. Um, and the complaint is that uh, it is taking the livelihood of artists away. Um, but but if we examine what it's actually doing, if we, let, let's think about sort of the education of the young artist. Um, so Salvador Dali, as an example, um, you know the, uh, uh, the, the the current program Dali is named after. You know he spent the first fifteen years of his career having to study how to apply paint to a canvas. How do you wield different set, uh, types of paintbrushes? Um, you know what is the what is the technical uh, complexity of you know grease on a on a on a on a canvas mm. that allows you to then see this beautiful image? It wasn't it wasn't art. It was me mechanical, right? It was, and and that fifteen years um, separates his ultimate application of his creativity. To be able to express those ideas from other people who have equally amazing creative ideas, but didn't spend 15 years learning how to put grease on a canvas. Um, so if I can eliminate that technical barrier, um, and I can technically give you the ability to produce something, do I then actually unleash creativity in a much broader number of people? Do I give you, who has not spent the time to learn how to use a paintbrush, um, the ability to create an amazing work of art? Um, because those ideas are in your head. So I'm actually expanding human capacity for creativity, not limiting it. Yeah, it's interesting. interesting. Yeah. Um, so just, just going back, because obviously we started this podcast thinking about success. Um, what do you think success will look like kind of for future generations then in a you know, fully implemented kind of AI world? And if you're looking to give them advice now, what kind of thing would you say to them that's going to really help them if they're on that you know upward curve of their career well i mean going back to the conversation we had about sort of the balance of what we define as success um i think the first thing that we should embrace is all of our diversity uh, as human beings and what what causes us each to become excited about the world that we live in um and so if I take a couple of archetypes not not to be limiting but to be e e examples um, some people enjoy exploration. They they enjoy, you know, arriving at that place that no one has been or seeing that vista that no one has seen. Um, some people enjoy um, discovery, um, you know, uncovering that new material uh, that has a property that no one has been able to um, expose, or or that 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 drug that is going to solve the next um, you know critical pandemic that we face as a as a planet together. Um, some people uh, actually enjoy um, the social interaction and organizing and um, uh, having people come together and work together to accomplish something and get rewarded by you know their ability to to create that common sense of purpose. Right. So I'm giving sort of three different very different examples. 
Um, but I think so. The first thing that we need to recognize in ourselves, and you know, you know, to to quote Plato, commenting on Socrates, uh, um, uh, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living. I think the first thing that we all need to do is examine our own lives and say, what are the things about ourselves in this world that are motivating? Um, because I think these technologies are going to give us the opportunity that I've enjoyed in a lot of my career of actually doing something which I truly enjoy. I do not have to flip burgers. I do not have to dig ditches. Um, I do not have to do things that are, that are in fact, not fulfilling to me, but put the food on the table. Um, and so I think we all have the opportunity to start saying, how do I define my life and my work in a way that is fulfilling? And then I think in pursuing that interest and in pursuing um, you know, those things that are fulfilling to ourselves, then being open, being curious, being creative, being a critical thinker, um, and having aspiration. Um, you know, it's, it is important to experiment and have that view of where am I going? Where do I want to go? Rather than letting the world happen to us. Um, and, and, uh, and, and then we will find our own successes. I think that's an absolutely you know, perfect way to finish the podcast, Ted. I think, you know, the way that you just described and the optimism behind how our current generations and future generations need to embrace and use it and look forward to the impact of technologies and, and artificial intelligence is one that I think leaves open to a lot of thinking for ourselves, for our for our own careers and how we how we use it and how we embrace it. Um, clearly, you are right at the uh, the coalface of it every day right now. And some of the analogies you've used have just been amazing to listen to. I think we could talk about it for a heck of a long, a lot longer, Ted, and I know you could as well. Uh, but we can't, sadly. But it's been a, it's been just such a, a fantastic time spent with you talking about this, learning about you and where you've come from and got to. And clearly, you just love what you're doing and the conversations you're having with your clients right now. And uh, and that's fantastic to see. Keep being optimistic, Ted. Um, keep the positivity. It's great. It's infectious. And we wanted to thank you so much indeed for your time here today. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to be with all of you today and talk about these issues and um, hopefully inspiring to the folks that listen to this. Thank you. Without doubt. Thanks, Ted. Thank you for listening to the Search and Succeed podcast. Please subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We'll see you on the next one. Yeah.